We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to the podcast this week, we have the impressive critic, in-demand lecturer, and insightful author, Mr. Adam Maiman, who longtime listeners will remember hearing last summer around this time as he joined me to discuss the life and career of actress Jean Tierney, a contributor to The Ringer, Criterion, Cinemascope, and more. Additionally, our Toronto-based guest has written thoughtful books on showgirls Ben Wheatley, the Coen Brothers, Paul Thomas Anderson, which will come in handy today, and the recently released David Fincher Mind Games from the great publisher Abrams. Adam, it is so wonderful to see you again, and I know that this conversation we'll be having shortly is entirely in your wheelhouse, so I'm really looking forward to getting to it. But before we dive in, I'd love to know how you're doing and how this year has been treating you so far. Uh, well, I'm really happy to be here. I had a great time talking to you about Gene Turney last year. There are worse yes. ways to spend research time than like looking at and listening to Gene Turney. That was oh, I fun, know. <laughs> fun, re- fun, fun research. And uh, a year later, I'm still in Toronto. I spend a lot of my time chasing after two kids under the age of five and trying to, you know, curate my my five and a half year old daughter Leah's film taste. So. You know, uh, I think that my favorite screening this year in Toronto was I took her to see my neighbor Totoro at the Lightbox. Oh, I love that film. I love it. And she loves it. She'd seen it about 15 times at that point. But then uh, it turned out that it was subtitled, not dubbed. Of course it is. Tiff is showing the movie properly, right? Yeah. I leaned leaned over to her and I said, you know, we can go. I mean, it's going to be in Japanese and she can't read subtitles. Not really at this point. And she looked at me and she said, that's okay. And she, she, so that was her first subtitled movie. I, I don't know if she would have sat still for it if she hadn't seen it a, a dozen times. Oh, uh, I love that. She was willing to go with it. Yeah. She, she, she was, she had a really good time. And so now she brags every so often. I don't even think she quite knows what subtitles are, but she'll say to people sometimes, she'll say, I watched the subtitled movie. So <laughs> very, very sweet. And then, yeah, otherwise here, just, uh, you know, having a nice, 
quiet summer and gearing up for the Toronto Film Festival if they ever announce any movies. We're recording yeah. this in, you know, in, in, in middle of July, whereby we would normally know much more of what's playing at TIFF. So whether they're keeping their cards close to the chest or they just don't know what's coming, we're all a little baffled. True. Yeah. I'm looking forward to your coverage when that happens and when we yeah. finally find out for sure. And since we last spoke, your latest book, as I mentioned, on David Fincher was released. So how has that experience been for you? And are you working on anything else, a book, an article that you would like to give us a sneak preview of or anything recent that you did? Well, I'm lucky that this summer, last fall, I wasn't able to launch the Fincher book in Toronto because the light box wasn't quite up and running. So I went to New York and and screened it with Matt Zoller's site. Actually, a friend and frequent guest of yours, Megan Abbott. We all talked about yes. Zodiac on stage, which was a blast. This summer, TIFF's going to have me do a screening of Zodiac at TIFF in, in August, which I'm really happy for. It's always, I mean, I'm very lucky to get to write books, and it's always nice to launch one in your own town. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of the students I teach at U of T are going to kind of, you know, come out and hang out, and I can pretend for an evening that I'm half as old as I am. <laughs> and I think, and I think the other Toronto thing I did this early summer, which was really a privilege, both because of the byline and also the subject, was getting to profile David Cronenberg. And it was a it was an interesting challenge because there are so many features on him and crimes True. of the future. Yeah, Neon pushed that movie very hard, and so trying to do one that was worthy of an outlet like the New Yorker, and trying to get a filmmaker who's very good at talking about his work to not just repeat himself. Mm-hmm. was fun but he's a hero of mine i mean not just the toronto thing i actually told him at one point off not off the record but it certainly wouldn't make it into the piece no. I, was like, I was like you know to some extent i make my life you know talking about movies and i don't mind the life i've made doing that and you were the first filmmaker who i ever uh found to be an auteur and wanted to know why you made your movies so i sort of said in a hopefully not cheesy way i'm like to some extent i owe you my life and oh. he, took that, he, he took that as a very uh, sincere compliment. But he's a poker-faced guy to interview. He's very funny. Okay, really? So you don't know if you're, if you're getting through to him a little bit, except for that moment, the sincerity. Right. Well, yeah. Or he's just, he's been called to account for his That's movie true. for so mm-hmm. long. Because nobody watches those movies from the 70s or 80s. I mean, now we know that we're supposed to interview him, right? But mm-hmm. at the time, it's not like people watched those movies and said, oh, that's that's neither here nor there, right? Mm-hmm. He always got so much attention and so much controversy. I think he's very, very good at articulating, but also at deflecting, and he gives good copy, right? Which yeah. is why when you look at all the interviews that he does, I think journalists, and I include myself in this, I'm being self-deprecating here, you feel like you've got something really good out of him, and it is good. And then you look at an interview from 1997, and even if it's a different movie, he's making the same point. Oh, I, wow. Yeah. So I, he is an expert at uh, explaining. Expert. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, auteurism is something that obviously I'm interested in, not necessarily in cheerleading for it, but like examining it. And you've dealt with auteurism in a thousand different ways in your work and in your podcast, right? You know, filmmakers mm-hmm. who are or who aren't or or what kind of you know artists are they? I guess with Cronenberg, it's an interesting question. Just the fact that he repeats himself in interviews and in his films, is that redundancy or is that principle, right? I don't know if you've ever thought of it in those terms with filmmakers you like. I love that. Consistent. 
Yeah. But is it that they do they have nothing new to say, or is it that they're so determined to say what they're saying they they can't shake it off? I think about this with him and with a lot of directors a lot. Yeah. Well, you brought up Matt Zoller Seitz and the, your story there reminded me of something he said about Oliver Stone, which is yeah. when he was working on his book. He said, when I met Oliver Stone, he was like an encyclopedia of everything that had ever been written about him. And so when he sat down, he like quoted Matt back to Matt of what he had written about Oliver Stone. And so you do wonder, I mean, they get interviewed all the time and, uh, you know, it's part of the craft it's not media training or phoniness so much for some of these people as, you know, they they know what to expect and they want to defend and explain their work in a specific way. So that's really a, a interesting wow. observation about Cronenberg. I, I won't say who, but I had another experience this summer of talking to a filmmaker. And I won't say if it was a book or a long article because I don't want to give it away, but it was okay. someone who I've, who I've written about a lot. And it was also someone who I would have guessed, I would have put money on or like gun to my head, bet my life that they would not have read said thing that I wrote because that's just what this filmmaker, mm -hmm. she, they, what, that's, that's their standard operating procedure. So when I got to talk to this person at the end of what was a long interview about totally other stuff, I said, uh, I'd be actually disappointed to know if you read thing X, cause it's not the sort of thing that you do. And the filmmaker got a very big laugh out of me. They said, don't worry, you won't be disappointed. <laughs> right. They oh, said, wow. They said, uh, you're, you're right that they haven't read it. And that's the flip side to what you're talking about with Oliver Stone. I think there's some people. Yeah. Can't, they can't do it. Mm -hmm. They either can't, they don't want to, it gets in their head or it's just not a, of, of interest to them. It's interesting. I didn't, I, I'd never heard Matt's anecdote about Stone that way, but he's a funny guy to be quoting critics back at him because i'm sure a lot of the time he's quoting very negative appraisals towards the end of his career he's gotten such bad reviews for a long time mm -hmm. and I, I have matt's stone book and i'm sure oliver stone's very happy to have such a sympathetic interpreter and an advocate for his work right because a yeah. lot of oliver a lot of oliver stone's reviews since about i don't know 2000 are not good but mm -hmm. but, but but matt's book is good so yeah know, it's worth, that old thing reading. of i don't like to tag people when i talk about them on twitter of course or filmmakers or actors right. because i always feel like if they want to know they'll find it themselves uh yeah. they're very capable i you know you get surprised by sometimes who you hear from and i did hear from a filmmaker once who admitted he said i don't review or read reviews at all he said but somebody sent me yours and said i could read that one and so, yeah, I think sometimes you need that uh, buffer person as well. I, th I think anybody would be flattered to read what a critic like you writes about them or what a good critic writes about them. I mean, some filmmakers are maybe just congenitally against it or they've been mm. burned. But there's also a kind of not validation because I don't think filmmakers need critics to be validated. But even if they don't need it, it doesn't mean sometimes they don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. They're you know? not making this work in a vacuum. They want people to see and respond to it. Yeah. Well, I'm very tempted to say the flip experience I had this year of a critic who actually told me that they had read something long. I wrote and liked it, but I will I will I will withhold. If I'm gonna withhold who was being mean to me, I'll withhold who was being nice and we can okay. you know we we can we we can put it to bed. But it's a it's a it's a fun thing to talk about. It is for sure. Or, well, um, I always look forward to seeing which theme ideas my wonderful and diverse guests dream up. And you came up with a truly fascinating one that
had you pulled my listeners on what might be ahead for Watch with Jen episode subjects, I don't think anyone would have been able to predict your topic, which is what makes it so unique. Tying in with the upcoming 60th anniversary of director John Frankenheimer's 1962 film, The Manchurian Candidate in October, you suggested a trio of movies all centered around the idea of mind control and psychotherapy, especially where veterans are concerned. Obviously, we'll go deeper into the films, which include John Huston's previously classified post-World War II documentary, Let There Be Light the aforementioned Manchurian Candidate, and Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, one by one in just a moment. But first, I would love to know more about why this topic appealed to you and what it is you think that makes the terrain so rich for storytelling and interest. Well, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting to talk about it as a general theme before going into the individual films. I mean, yeah. one, of the things I, one of the things I like about your podcast is that you're very generous about guests talking about things that are of interest to them. There's not always a topical hook. Saying it's the 60th anniversary of the Manchurian Candidate is not really a date that will live in history. You know, anniversaries, oh. are, are, <laughs> anniversaries are convenient, but the mm-hmm. movie's no greater or lesser if it was 60 years old or 52 years old or no, whatever. I mean, we, it's we, we so fresh. Yeah. So fresh. But I, I think Manchurian Candidate, before the theme you asked for, I mean, the film had been on my mind because... With the upcoming sight and sound poll, I was really trying to think of how to craft an honest list and not honest to other people. Because as soon as you make a list, people are like, well, that's performative and they're right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, trying to craft an honest list to myself where I'm not checking myself and not sort of, you know, ticking boxes or filling out the field. I'm like, what are the movies that I've lived with for the longest that mean the most to me? And mm-hmm. any list of those I make is always going to have Manchurian Candidate on it because of when and how I, I I saw it sort of in middle school and as a as a title on my mom's and dad but mostly my mom's uh, VHS shelf and oh, as one wow. of the first as one of the first first films I wrote about in school that I had to do some form of research on because when you're 11 or 12 and you're you know writing you know it, it's about McCarthyism and and communism mm-hmm. and the Cold War you don't know what these things mean I mean you know what they mean but you're not so you're a Canadian kid. This is not exactly the history curriculum when you're 11 or 12, right? No. I wanted to write about movies. I wanted to write about that movie. I knew what it was about the film that I liked, but it was also one of those early experiences of like context matters. And so whether that context was talking to my parents who were both, you know, kids of the 60s and journalists or going and looking it up in an actual book because I'm old enough that I couldn't just go on a website. And even mm-hmm. what I had learned about the film from Roger Ebert's review of it, which I could find in a book, that it had been suppressed for 25 years. Yeah. It was really interesting. And we'll get to this link, but I love that there's this uh, very odd link between Let There Be Light and Manchurian Candidate that for different reasons, they weren't in circulation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one of those one of those was government mandated and one of those had to do with the distributor and the rights. And there's a rumor that Frank Sinatra kept Manchurian Candidate out of circulation, which we can get to. So that's the movie that I wanted to talk about with you. And then as for the theme... I talked about these three movies a little bit when I showed The Master at TIFF right before COVID. The last movie I I presented before COVID happened also as a launch for the Paul Thomas Anderson book. Oh, wow. Was The Master. Wow. Was The Master. And I roped in a movie that I happen to know you love very much. I didn't want to tell you that I was going to mention it because I 
I think you're a big fan and I think you'll see how it fits. During that lecture, in addition to Let There Be Light and Mentoring Candidate, I talked about best years of our lives. Right? Oh, and one of my favorites. Yep. I know it is. And yep. about that idea of reintegration into society and you know, veterans coming back and different kinds of trauma. So that theme is really interesting to me, this idea that in a moment of prosperity, you have these broken people. And I think that all three of the movies we're officially talking about, and maybe you'll hijack it a bit for best years of our lives too. They're either <laughs> psych psychically or physically or spiritually or some combination, all kind of broken. And even if yeah. Venturing a Candidate is a Korean War movie and not a World War II movie, it's the exact same vibe mm -hmm. of a of what happens to a veteran in war. Yeah. And then and then in terms of the the, the mental stuff, or they had that idea of a, of, of mind control movies. I find it interesting how it moves from the documentary context of Let There Be Light into the science fictional context of The Manchurian Candidate, which is not a sci-fi movie the way War of the Worlds is a sci-fi no. movie, but it is a movie where the villain is to some extent a mad scientist. Yeah, or, you have to... Or, or, or little Frankenstein. Yeah, Little Frankenstein, or a bit maybe of a criminal hypnotist, which is a, a, a negative character trait that goes all the way back to Svengali and Dr. Mabuse, like very much roots of cinema there, mm -hmm. right? And the dreamlike centerpiece in Manchurian Candidate is just a wonderful meditation of that relationship between dreaming and cinema, which is so interesting, right? The idea yeah. that these, these dreams are being stage managed almost as movie sets. I think that film has incredibly dense psychological texture to it in addition to the plot. Yeah, the symbolism alone. Symbolism I mean, alone. my goodness. Yeah, I mean, and it's one of the great Freudian movies of all time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is like, you know, do you fuck or kill your mother? I mean, it's pretty it, much. Yeah. And, and, and in a way that's just as good, not not just as good, but in a way that's very adjacent to Hitchcock and Psycho. Mm -hmm. Those movies are a great double bill, but someone. Being, yeah. Or even like, Vertigo a little bit with Vertigo. the dreams. Yep. Yes, yeah. totally. And then, of course, getting to the master, the film is almost an extrapolation deliberately on Let There Be Light. Anderson has told anyone who will listen that yes. that's the movie that he made the master out of. He yeah, it it's on the Blu-ray. On the Blu-ray. Uh, as always, PTA is exceptionally gracious and open about the sources of his influences. I mean, you can say that he's a filmmaker who steals a lot, to which he'll sort of be like, yes, you know, he's, he's, yeah. he's aware of it. And I also just think it makes for a funny parallel to to manchurian candidate in the sense of there's about a broken character who kind of wants to become whole and the master's not a thriller exactly but there's an interesting there's an interesting spiritual continuity a little bit between raymond shaw and freddie quell right that mm -hmm. uh, maybe more people would talk about montgomery clift's acting as being a, a uh, a precedent for what Phoenix is doing, or people talk about Brando, but there's a little bit of the same misery and misanthropy you have in Raymond Shaw. I'm interested in the yeah, way that both, the, that's the, a the good link. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the way that both movies talk about military service and the way that both movies deal with the idea of, of love and the girl who got left behind, right? Because yes, you know, in the sweetheart, yes, sweetheart. Manchurian <laughs> Candidate, it's Josie Jordan, but in uh, the Master, because Anderson's very funny, it's Doris Day. Yes. She becomes Doris Day by marriage, right? Which mm -hmm. is funny every time I think of it. Very, very funny. Yeah. So I so so I feel like it's a fun, a fun trilogy. And then just I think just hovering above that in general, because you called it that idea of 
mind control movies. It's just an interesting motif in a lot of thrillers and in a lot of genre mm-hmm. movies. We even talked about it a little bit last time in terms of Gene Turney's character in Whirlpool, Yes, Whirlpool. Mm-hmm. Right. Which 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 uses it in a kind of melodramatic, you know, mm-hmm. B movie way. So I don't know. It feels like a fun space to for us to play around in. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, going in chronological order in terms of when the film was made, not so much when it was finally made available to most viewers, we have the Maltese Falcon and Treasure of the Sierra Madre director, John Huston's groundbreaking 1946 documentary, Let There Be Light. Filmed at Brentwood, Long Island's Mason General Hospital, this long-suppressed, roughly hour-long doc takes a look at PTSD, psychotherapy, and hypnosis in its treatment of soldiers returning to the United States with debilitating trauma at the end of the Second World War. Kept out of sight by the, of the public by the military for several decades due to its unsparing look at what war does to those we send to fight it, although they claimed it was for privacy reasons. After the film premiered in 1980 in New York, it started to gain a momentum, interest, and respect as a vital historical document. But Adam, I'm going to let you start us off on this one. So talk to me about Let There Be Light. Well, that was very, <laughs> that was very thorough context. And I think that talking about Houston is interesting. I mean, for one thing, we were talking about you know, tourism off the top and Houston was often proffered as the anti-auteur, right? Yeah. You get right, you get right down into the trenches. It was like, you know, whatever you think of what Pauline Kale said about tourism, she was right that boys like to make lists and pretend that like their favorites are fighting or something. I mean, that was the mm-hmm. subtext of circles and squares. She was criticizing the machismo of tourism, but she also loved Houston's machismo, right? And she loved that he was that was the common denominator in his work, but the idea that he didn't have a distinct visual signature or use the camera in the same way, Mm-mm. he was he was kind of her stubborn exception to the rule that Saris was trying to make. And the reversal of that is that a lot of the hardcore tourists, like the Hitchcock O'Hoxians or whatever, they picked on Houston a lot because they yeah. sort of right they sort of said, well, but you know, you're not consistent or 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 whatever. But there's an interesting through line for Houston in terms of psychotherapy, because of course, 15 years after Let There Be Light, he makes Freud, right? Which is. Yeah. Yes. Like, that was with, something he had been obsessed with for obsessed, a while. Yes. Obsessed with. So I'm and not saying. Sartre, that, uh, he was, I'm, he directed sure. No Exit on stage when he came back after World War II. So yeah, he was right in the thick of it. Absolutely. And a man of considerably elastic enthusiasms like yeah you know, we're not going to digress too much into houston tourism or anti-tourism but i've always thought that that connection between let there be light and freud is is interesting mm-hmm. not because it's the skeleton key where you unlock all the other movies i mean i don't think either of those two movies tell you much about you know the african queen no but but i but i but i think it's a, it's an interesting through line and i think that the machismo in houston's work you know these tough men stubborn men, men against their environment, men against each other, men against themselves. That's a pretty, it creates a pretty tender dynamic in Let There Be Light because these guys are broken. Yeah. And I don't think Houston went into making this film with the intent of exploiting anybody at Edgewood State Hospital on on, on, on Long Island. Uh, I don't think he went into it to, 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 to condescend to them or embarrass them. I think he went into it not to show their weakness, but to show what he considered 
the aftermath of their strength, right? Because it's something of an apolitical movie. It doesn't really weigh in on the war. And, and in 1946, you could have, because I think morally speaking, the United States and the Western world was not pulling itself apart yet about the consequences of the war, at least in Europe, Japan, no. and Hiroshima, a whole other front, right? A whole other hemisphere. Yes. So it's not meant as an anti-war movie. It's, or if it's an anti-war movie, it's not anti-war in the sense that we shouldn't have gone to, America shouldn't have gone to war. Well, what does it look like when they do? And in that sense, it's such a rejoinder, even if it's not meant against it. It's such a rejoinder to the Capra why we fight stuff, right? The Capra why we fight stuff, like, this is why we're doing it. Houston is mm -hmm. saying, well, we did it, and this is what it... What happens. What yep. happens. Yeah, he went into it with only empathy. Um, I did an episode on John Houston that actually kicked off the season with my right. friend S.A. Cosby, who wrote Razorblade Tears. And we went into some of Houston's movies, and I bought way too many books on Houston. So uh, I love research. And he did, uh, it's funny you brought up a skeleton key because he was actually given a skeleton key that would let him anywhere into any oh, wow. room of the hospital at any hour. He really just wanted to prove that these men weren't people we should throw away. They should be hired. They should be considered, um, you know, positive, upstanding members of society. He was so fascinated by hypnosis that after observing so much of it, he learned how to do it. And so when the main doctor you see in the documentary was too busy to hypnotize somebody, John Houston would do it. And he said he could get people under within two minutes, and then he would immediately go get somebody to, you know, do the actual treatment. But I love this idea of John Houston with that John Houston voice, you know, hypnotizing you. Well, which is an amazing, you know, through line to this theme. It's a theme I'm interested in where there are other examples directorially of that, whether it's Herzog on Heart of Glass, right? Yeah. Where the entire cast was hypnotized or one of the ones that I really like because it's a film that I enjoy and the interviews about it are interesting is in Candyman. I don't know if you know about this, but that Bernard Rose had Virginia Madsen hypnotized for all the scenes where she sees Candyman. Oh, my goodness. So, I had so no idea. So when you see her in the film, she's like very glassy eyed. And it's, it's by her account, not by his account. She's talked more about it than he has. You know, he, she, she says that that's very, very true. She also says that in retrospect, it really bothers her that that happened. It wasn't, it wasn't without consent, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting metaphor for direction, right? And mm -hmm. the, the master, when we get to it has a little bit of that where it's not explicitly hypnosis that Lancaster Dodd does, but it is a kind of like, immersive imaginary acting exercise and this idea of scene setting and getting into character yeah. when, Richard, when Richard Brody wrote about the master he wrote very smartly that the Dodd um the Dodd Freddy scenes are sensibly about a form of psychotherapy or cult indoctrination but they also feel like acting exercises right so yeah very much right? you know the window the door the window yeah, yeah. or the wall so, yep so so that tidbit about houston which i also i, I was glad you brought it up because i knew it i mean you, you yeah you, you 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 were right to mention it i think you know it's 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 very telling and yet the camera doesn't assert power over the the, the guys no. right yeah it's a, it's a very self-effacingly made movie and it's by no means verite because it's like drenched in narration and there's direct to camera but there is some of the institutional 
study or observation you have in some filmmakers I really love about 15 years later, like a bit of Wiseman and King, especially King's Warrendale, which is also about a form of intensive therapy with disturbed kids in in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's just he's just interested in the way the place works. And what I like about Let There Be Light, which is not a super long movie, right? I mean, it's not even... No, it's like 58 minutes. 58 yeah. minutes, right? Not even feature length. Is I love that it takes the time to literally and sort of just experientially map the facility, right? Mm-hmm. And you, it's it's shot to give a sense of daily rhythm and, and, and ritual. Uh, Anderson yeah. copied that totally in the master, all the scenes of them going up and down stairs and sitting in, in seminar rooms. Yeah. And Anderson and loves stairs. Yes. And he, d- does he ever, he's, he, he should make the spiral staircase or, or something, <laughs> remake it. Um, you know, I like that Houston does that. And then he kind of divides the movie into these case studies, which are quite harrowing. Yes. And right. And there is this subtext to all of it of repair and of and of restoration and of bringing people back into the fold and ideologically it's funny that as empathetic as the movie is it also has a kind of hard line which is like america's great and you should be part of it which which does dovetail a bit with um capra it's not at all suggesting by the way maybe you don't want any part of this society it's saying you do mm-hmm. right the master yeah. is a movie that's, that's the more, goal is to goal. join yeah and conform yeah, yeah. But seeing these guys, these broken men, oh man, uh, is 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 very harrowing and also to some extent moving because the tenderness of the care. And I don't know. I'd love to know what you think of this. I haven't read anyone write about this specifically in this period. And I'm not trying to do gender essentialism or stereotypes, but of course we're talking about an American movie about men in the 1940s. So I'm just you know talking about the boundaries oh, that, sure. that Houston would have been aware of. It's so interesting to see a movie about tenderness and care and softness that is almost completely bereft at that time of female figures. It really is. Because the psychiatrists are all men, Mm -hmm. right? And so even the intimacy of something like psychotherapy, of like talking someone through a nightmare and offering comfort, it's like not Florence Nightingale. It's something else. It's Mm -hmm. it's really, really striking about that film. I, I think of that every time I see it. Yeah, he talks about uh, the experience really just made him realize that love is the most important thing. And it's, you know, in treatment, and it's what we're all looking for. And love seems to be at the root of psychological health. Uh, Houston was pointing out like a lot of these men and you see it in the movie, um, the, the poor soldier who comes in who can't even walk and there's something going on with his family, you know, and it's mom and there's something with a sweetheart with another guy. Yeah. Houston really just wanted to, you know, show these men as they were. And he talked about now we know it's like the Hawthorne effect about um, the ones that were actually observed or on camera seem to do better because they thought they were being observed or kind of cared for in a way that the other guys weren't according to John Houston anyway. And he would have, yeah, a camera on the doctor and a camera on the patient. And he was saying, um, yeah, that the men actually throughout therapy as it went on, like at first they were just so caught in their own pain that they weren't really, you know, caring about the camera, but then by the end of it, it made them feel better. Yeah. No, and and again, you're dealing with people in such intimate states, right? Where mm-hmm. every 
every impulse or emotion they might have, even something that you're describing, like a sense of inequality or jealousy is heightened, right? Because these are all people who've not only been through something, they're still going through something. And the narr- the narration never gets this prosaic or on the nose, but when you watch the film, you're aware of different kinds of struggle. I'm not someone who is ever roused by the idea of be of battle or being in in combat. Like when people say that that's very stirring and self-actualizing, I go, I'll have to take your word for it, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but at the same but at the same time, the sense of these men in conflict with the memory of what they did, in mm-hmm. conflict with their own bodies, in conflict in conflict with their own nerve endings to some extent, and trying to win, right? Or at least trying not to lose. Mm-hmm. It makes it in a very abstract way a kind of combat film and i it does right and and i thought of it this summer while watching a really exquisite movie or a mostly exquisite movie that i liked a lot which was terence davies new film benediction oh i haven't seen that yet which which is about a post-world war one poet who made poetry of his trauma but who also spent time in hospitals and sanitariums in the uk and you know davies a very different kind of filmmaker than houston or the other guys that we're talking about today but he also really pinpoints that feeling of you've been through something, but it's not over, right? It's over, but it's not over. And that's the nightmare, literally nightmares in the case of Let There Be Light, but the figurative nightmare that that movie is dealing with. And that I think the other movies we're talking about this week deal with, with, with too. And we should, yeah. and we should, and we should talk about how a movie dealing with that kind of tenderness and empathy and nightmarishness, then no one, the the army didn't want anyone to see it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Houston tells quite a story. I'm sure you read it too, where he said, you know, they had releases signed releases by everyone. And he said, interestingly enough, they went missing when they were supposed to. Yep. Like uh, present them. They just completely. And so then Houston said, our production team, we went back to the men themselves. Like, can we get each one to write a letter and saying this didn't violate my privacy? And the army just still balked. And yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Right. So, so even if the film doesn't make any kind of concerted critique of the American military, and it doesn't, mm-hmm. the film's history does. The film yes. almost becomes like evidence or an exhibit against. these attitudes particularly that attitude of don't bring us bad news don't demoralize anybody yeah that's where the right in tandem of with his last documentary too which kind of alienated some people was it the battle of san pietro yeah i don't know the year of that but yeah 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 you're you're you're, you i I say this as a you are an encyclopedia it's very (laughs) um you know the 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 subtext of that movie is whether it's houston's intended subtext or not uh, is you know that that the country kind of wants you back, right? Yeah. That's what the, that's what the that's what the officers say. They say people want you back, and then you have something like this, and it's like, well, actually, we we don't, or we prefer not to look at you. Like, mm-hmm. thank you for your thank you for your service. Yes, that empty platitude. Mm-hmm. Those, those empty platitudes, which you also see very much in a movie like Best Years of Our Lives. When I yes. showed the film at TIFF, I showed the sequence where Harold Russell's in the diner, right? Mm-hmm. And he, the guy who he ends up fighting with, he's not antagonizing him. He's complimenting no. him at first. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the compliment starts ringing really hollow when you, you've you got nothing left, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, watching this movie really hit hard because I'm actually I'm somebody who, you know, never wanted to be in the service. But within my family tree, we go back like four generations, all various branches of military, you know, Marine, Air Force, Army, Navy, everything. And um, so watching this, I was thinking about my grandpa and how he would tell us a little bit about World War II. And he was also in Korea. But um, but then he would clam up or get emotional and not want to talk about it at all. Towards the end of his life, he started to get more emotional and would open up a little. But I was thinking about that percentage that they throw at you at the beginning, like 20% of casualties, yeah, something like that are psychological. And I'm like, just 20%? Like, even if you're still dealing and you're not um, going through the level of trauma that these men are, you know, I can't imagine going into battle and then just going home and making it, you know, like, well, well and also nothing happened. Yeah. Well, they say twenty. They say twenty percent are psychological, but it's like what percentage are conjoined, physical True. and psychological? Yes. Because one thing the movie makes very clear is that the 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 the, the physiological byproducts of the psychological problems they're so palpable, right? Yeah. And that's why, again, not trying to jump ahead, but I, I I've said this a lot about Phoenix is acting in the master. And again, it's not as if anyone really needs to stand up for Joaquin Phoenix, who's an Oscar winner, and you know the master is very critically acclaimed. But at the time, people said the performance was too nervous, too ticky, the body language no. was absurd. And you watch Let There Be Light, and you realize it's a document. The, 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 yep. Let There Be Light is a documentary, but Phoenix's performance takes its cues from documentary. He's not exaggerating at all. Not at all. Not at all. No. Right? You were expecting no. Freddie Quell to walk in and do the Rorschach test, essentially. You, 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 you are. And I think that Let There Be Light stands on its own and has its own history. It has its own legacy. I mean, it's not a movie that needs Paul Thomas Anderson or anyone's patronage. On the other hand, Anderson's got a pretty big tent and it's a big tent of younger film goers and whatever you want to make of the term, you know, film bros and tourists and whatever else. And so including that film on the DVD, he's not just showing his work. He's not just saying, actually, I took from this. He's taking a film that had a somewhat contested history and making it widely available as part of his widely distributed Oscar nominated mm-hmm. film. So like admirable. It. Yeah. It, 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 it's admirable and it's very, again, in keeping with, I think, a positive form of, 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 of cinephilia, which is, you know, don't just show your work and cite it, but actually kind of include it. And it's a compliment to him that he did. Yeah. For, kind of yeah, our generation, we had Scorsese, you know, in the yeah. 80s and 90s doing the film preservation and talking about old movies and making you excited about them. And so it's really cool when you do have people like Paul Thomas Anderson who are taking that level of scholarship seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like that this past year someone tried to bait him. They, they I think it was in Variety. They said, well, do you like superhero movies? And I think he took a breath and he's like, they're fine. I like Chang Chi. I saw it with my kids. You know, he, he yeah. didn't he he didn't want he didn't to go take full, the bait. Full, yes. full, full Scorsese Coppola because, you know, then the online uh Although they oh, went after yeah. him, they went after him for other reasons, but we don't have to talk about, <laughs> about, about, yeah. about, about that. Um, no, but it's a, but, it, and it's a film that I hope that your listenership can seek out because while it is on the master DVD, it's also on YouTube. And while that's yeah. not like the Criterion best channel, it, it's everywhere. Criterion channel. It, that's why I should have said Criterion channel first. Sorry. So it's Oh there. no, you're fine. Yeah. It's, it's viewable for sure. Yes. Well, based upon Richard Condon's 1959 novel, The Manchurian Candidate, which was adapted by screenwriter George Axelrod, our eponymous next film is the one made two years later that inspired today's episode. Still as shocking as ever, 
John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate centers on Lawrence Harvey's Korean War veteran, Raymond Shaw, who is, along with the members of his army platoon, brainwashed and turned into a sleeper assassin as part of a vast communist conspiracy to assassinate a presidential nominee and overthrow the government. Released originally at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the film, now considered a classic, co-stars Frank Sinatra and Angela Lansbury in her Oscar-nominated role. Yeah, I mean, boy, is she good! We'll, we'll, oh, we'll, she is amazing. As 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 Mrs. Eisland, you know, again, not to get in trouble because there's a lot of people I know who both enjoy and some people I think insanely, but they're entitled to it. They prefer the 2004. Uh, Demi remake, which is an interesting remake, even though I I, I don't like it. Uh, I haven't seen it since like oh four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, walk walk don't run. But, <laughs> yeah. but I do think it's funny that Meryl Streep inevitably, at that point in her career, uses her prestige and her Meryl Streepness to to play that part. And of course, she's memorable. But you see her trying so hard. And what I love about Lansbury in this film. You know, she's only two years older than Lawrence Harvey, which I'm sure I she know. Was, yeah. you know, probably probably inwardly insulted by. Mm-hmm. And she's made to look very unflattering. I mean, it's not a flattering part. But what I've always thought is even though the character is pent up and filled with rage and trying very hard, Lansbury is effortless. Mm-hmm. She's effortless. Like that is a performance that does not sweat, you know? No, she doesn't even blink. I was watching no. uh, the scene where she's basically telling him that he needs to assassinate the candidate and her eyes. She doesn't blink that entire time except real close to the end. And it's just stunning. And it doesn't come off as protracted or like she's trying to be menacing. It's just, she's in character. Yeah. Well, and when I I wrote about the film, when it came out on criterion a few years ago, and it was in the the context of a lot of people, including noted public intellectual Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I mean that seriously, <laughs> he's a public intellectual. Bash, he, yeah. he, he was one of the first people to call Donald Trump a Manchurian candidate. And I tend to have a, a personal limit on the number of times I say Donald Trump's name at any given time. So I don't, oh, want, yeah. to talk about, I don't want to talk about him. <laughs> but I, what I like of a Manchurian candidate, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, two movies that I hold in the highest esteem, and they're from the same period, is even though they are so specific to that period and everything in Manchurian Candidate is so about America in the late 50s, you have a stand-in for Joseph McCarthy, you have echoes of John F. Kennedy, it doesn't become dated because what it's really about is more primal than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the communist infiltration of, of, of America is very timely for then, and the idea of the Korean War as a kind of fraud, which is implied by the idea that Raymond War Raymond's not a real war hero. I mean, that's all stuff that people in '62 would be really kind of, you know, lit up by. But I mean, just more generally as a kind of Oedipal thing, or as a as a primal thing about like not wanting to do what your parents want you to do. Yeah, <laughs> and the idea that you you know he's quite literally you know mind controlled into doing his mother's will, and he has to kind of make that break. Uh, you don't need to have the 1962 contest for the context for that. It's just really potent. It is. And, 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 yeah. and, 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 and powerful stuff. And the tragedy of Raymond Shaw as a guy who's so miserable, so unhappy, a product of such a hideous, you know, childhood and, and, you know, manipulated and pushed and given all these kind of false, uh, all these false roles, like the, the role of war hero. And he's a, he's an oblivious assassin and in the end. He can only find himself in suicide 
And yeah. I, as much as the movie is considered a satire and funny and it's outrageous, and those things are all things I love about it, don't get me wrong, I find the end deeply sad. It's a find, tragedy. Of, it's, a tra- yeah. it's, it's a tragedy. And the fact that he puts on his Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. which he hadn't earned, which he hadn't earned. And then feeling no. yeah, right? it's then an feeling empty, yeah, it's an, em- an empty, an empty signifier class. of yeah. And then he puts it on in the moment of of killing himself that that's the only way. You know, all of a sudden you're in somewhat profound territory about that psychic break for veterans, even though it's in a total pop context. And Pauline Kael wrote about it as a as a pop movie. She compared it to Citizen Kane, which I think actually makes a lot of sense, not just because it's so expressionistic, but because it's American in like a celebratory and critical way. Like it's not. Uh, yes. It's not anti-American, but it's not exactly pro-American. Mm-hmm. But even with that pop quality that it has and all the hilarious visual jokes and, you know, he's coming up with the John Island, the, the, the actual Manchurian candidate is Angela Lansbury's husband. The idea that he's being controlled by Moscow he has to figure out how many communists are in the defense department. So he says 57 because he's looking at a bottle of. Heinz yes, passion, that's right? hilarious. Yeah, all, all that shit is hilarious. But I mean, underneath it, it's a sad, sad, sad movie, mm-hmm. defeatist movie. And Sinatra, whatever you think of him, he sells that tragedy at the end. His mm-hmm. line readings at the end about his former colleague, his, his commanding officer, they're really sad. Yeah, it's also horrifying at the beginning yeah oh, you're yeah. not sure what you're watching at the beginning with that you know famous garden party sequence and then it it goes to the mind control aspect and so we see kind of the duality of what's happening but as these men are just traumatized and waking up with nightmares which is a big element of ptsd i mean you brought up best years of our lives and that's what happens with the dana andrews character is yeah. he has nightmares too and so i thought the the nightmare aspect and the fact that we see them and we see these men start questioning their own reality and their memories is really harrowing. Yeah. Well, well, Frankenheimer comes out of TV and his reputation is this like hard driving. It's almost like that link between live TV and journalism that people used to make where it's like, get it done. We have, you know, get it out there really sort of precise and fist pounding and you know you have all the the, these images of you know like smoky rooms and shirt sleeves like those are the kinds of teleplays that he made and lumet too and he he worked in those high pressure environments but he has a a really like oniric visual sense in that movie the dream sequences are amazing Mm -hmm. they're 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 adjacent i mean they're not exactly the same thing but they're like adjacent to bunuel or adjacent to the dali dream scene in in spellbound spellbound yeah maybe that could have fit with this theme from a slightly different angle it doesn't have the military part but certainly that yeah idea these the two would go together too yeah would, to- would go together and the way he does it as the circular camera movement where it's like oh yeah it just pans all the way around yep all the way around and fills in what is at first uh a disguised space and then you see mm-hmm. what the space is repressing right yes you see the the fake memory that's been inserted on top of the real one and then because it's taking place in a dream it becomes a contested space where the two dreamers the first one is uh, sinatra and then the second one is a black serviceman and of course in his dream the ladies at the garden party are all african-american which is hilarious yeah it's like a simpsons joke it's really funny that in his subconscious the old ladies who are there to talk about hydrangeas are you know black, black ladies uh you know, then they like contest for space. And so you within any cut, 
it's so disorienting. It's the garden party, and then it cuts the reverse shot, and it's the 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 communist stronghold, and there's Stalin on the wall, and yes, and Mao, and 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 all that stuff. It's 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 phenomenal, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't yeah. want to. Sorry, no, go on, please. Oh no! At first, I was going to say when I saw when I was younger, it felt initially, and it's because Frankenheimer comes out of TV a little bit, but it felt like a Twilight Zone episode thousand percent but then it winds up getting you know just far more serious and sadder underneath and while there was uh that element of melancholy throughout you know the twilight zone this really drives home a lot of contradictory points and yeah by the end of it you know what you were kind of amused by by the end of it is just so shocking yeah it it, it is and what makes it shocking is that idea i think which brings the idea of war to the home front, but that idea of collateral damage. I mean, the most yes. horrifying sequence in the film is when he kills Senator Jordan, which is a politically motivated killing, and then his lover uh, is home, right? So that scene's actually quite funny at first in a, in a hideous way, because when he shoots the senator, he shoots him through a milk carton. Yeah. And so you want to talk about that idea of a bleeding heart, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, the, could, And could, on the black and white floor, like a chessboard. Yep. Yeah, black, black, white floor, like a chessboard. I mean, again, that's kind of like Hitchcockian. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's a way of making the violence seem even more graphic than it actually yes. is. But then when he shoots her on the staircase, there's no close-up of harvey's face fighting his programming there's no moment no. Where, he, where he apologizes to her he 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 shoots her she falls and he just walks away yeah and i mean it's not quite the same thing as janet lee being killed in psycho this is a supporting character not the star and it's mm-hmm. it's a, a short moment not drawn over like virtuoso like in psycho but it is such a violation of the audience's expectations. It's not yeah. that we haven't seen movies where women or, or the hero's lover doesn't die, but they usually die at the end. Yes. They, and, and these they, and, were the two people that loved him basically like his yeah. mom professes to, but she's just manipulating. These were the two most open people yeah. and yeah, there's no and, place and, for him here. Yeah. And you, and you get pre pre shivers in a way of something. And again, this is totally incidental. Anyone listening to this podcast, hopefully doesn't shake their head and say, these movies have nothing to do with each other, but you get little foreshocks of stuff like the Terminator or the idea of this kind of program to sat- I mean, it's very interesting that, that comes out in 1962, the same year as Le Jeté, which could actually make for a quadruple bill for talking about mind control, because the characters, if you remember in Le Jeté, they don't mm-hmm. literally get in a time machine they're induced back to dream about the past and the idea is that they travel in their dreams, just like in somewhere in time. Uh, but I mean, yes. But, with but the I penny. Mean, yeah. I mean, you know, Le Jeté features, you know, you know, you know, climaxes on, uh, on an assassination, you know, and uh, an assassination the year before Kennedy, but something where it's just in this moment, this whole life and love affair becomes extinguished. You know, they, the, 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 the sense of lovers who are not going to get to, 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 to stay together. And there is a little bit of the same ellipticism and a little new wave influence or a little new wave parallel in some of the ways Manchurian Candidate is edited because it's very jazzy. It is. Yeah. Kind of that beat generation sort of cross between the beats and new wave. I love what you brought up um, the Terminator because thinking about it and then the milk in the second movie, there's a stabbing that goes through milk. Yeah, so yeah. this might have been a poor, little bit uh, of a nod. Yeah. Poor, poor John Connor's uh, horrible yes. foster foster dad. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, when they're talking on the phone about about Wolfie, I like that. Yes. Um, and Sinatra is such a, an interesting star because he carries all of the Sinatra cadences, right? Mm-hmm. He's very good. I'm not making yeah. fun of him, but when he's on the 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 the, the, the train with Janet Lee, such an odd scene. I would love someone to write a book about that scene or just an essay on that train scene, right? Yeah. But he says, what does he say to her? He says, I've been having a nightmare, a real swinger of a nightmare. Like he's not, he's not concealing his Sinatra-ness. No, not at all. And I love how he's just like going full out with the honesty and it's a weird conversation. It's very charged. And she's still just going at him full speed and trying to pick him up. And it's like, yeah. this guy? I mean, most of us would have been a little alarmed. Yeah. Well, and lots of people have intuited that, you know, Rosie may be his handler. Because there's a lot of very yes, odd yes. Di- dialogue cues. And that she's kind of, you know, a counterforce or she's part of the same thing. But from a more a more benign point of view. And to some extent, you could argue the movie's a bit of a waste of Janet Lee Because she really is just there as a kind of sounding board. For him. Yeah. She doesn't she doesn't affect the plot much. But then you have a scene that goes on like that and has such a woozy, ambiguous, mm-hmm. uh, ambiguous quality to it. And it reminds you of a time too when even a, a pretty strapping, propulsive, plot-oriented thriller could breathe. You yeah. Know? It it it's a it's a maniacally controlled movie in terms of the set pieces. And again, it's a great piece of film direction, but it's it's got odd bits, and I love the odd bits. I love them. I love that it stops dead for a Kung Fu fight, which I think Sinatra once said in an interview was the first, the first American movie that had Kung Fu in it, which I'm sure is not true. Mm-hmm. That, that fight between him and Henry Silva is very, very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah. And I love the moment in the bar where they just suddenly play solitaire and it yeah. kind of kicks it off. And then we go to the water. Yeah. There's some weird stuff that they do in that movie. Some, the way that things are revealed to us. And it makes yeah. it just very fascinating. Yeah. And if and if you've read the, I mean, I read the novel. This I haven't. Of, well, I alluded to off the top, you know, little eleven-year-old me wants to yeah. understand this movie. So you know, I went and read the the novel, and it's narratively faithful, but the the attitude it was really George Axelrod in the script. It's the same thing you get with the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where W.D. Richter, like, it's the same plot beats, but you just get a sense that he's kind of a cool guy, you know, in the 78 Body Snatchers. Which yeah. Is the poster for behind me. I was noticing that. I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I love it more than anything. Um, but, you know, Axelrod and Manchurian Candidate, it's just these little things. Like, I love the line, the, 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 the main doctor, the, the, the the doctor who's programming all of them he's he's in the hospital where Raymond's been laid up in traction right they fake the the car accident mm-hmm. and he says he's he has to go to Macy's and his wife has given him a, the most appalling list and I love the idea of the guy who's leading he's the tip of the spear of the the subconscious communist insurgency against the United States trying to install a shadow Manchurian government or whatever but he's going to Macy's yeah because because the commodity fetish is still strong and he's mm-hmm. like you know America's an evil empire and America is is a disease and, and an illness but you know he still wants to shop and yeah I think the and I think the movie bristles with that kind of ambivalence because it's yes it's an anti-reactionary movie it's making fun of McCarthy and that kind of hysteria. On the other hand, it is about a communist plot to overthrow the United States. It's not imagined or metaphorical. No. Real. Funny. Yeah. That it it that is it, has... it is funny. It's such a ridiculous idea. 
but the way it's carried out is just mesmerizing. And I love this period of Frankenheimer because, you know, it comes with seven days of May, which I just learned this yeah. week from Michael Beschloss um, on Twitter was sharing that Kennedy gave him White House cooperation on that movie because he was so worried that there might be a coup to overthrow the government that he wanted yeah. Frankenheimer's uh, film and Frankenheimer to have everything he needs. And so these two movies would kind of go together too. Well, and Kennedy can't help but haunt Manchurian candidate. You have Sinatra's friendship with him. Yeah. You have, you have Raymond as a, uh, a war hero. Who's also part of a bit of a political dynasty. Like the dynasty is more on his mom's side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's the, the Joe Kennedy I guess she's the one fixing the election. Yes. But, but, you know, I, that for a long time, it was rumored or whispered about or sort of intuited that one reason it was with, withdrawn from distribution. I mean, you couldn't see the Manchurian mm -hmm. candidate in the 60s and 70s. It wasn't an obscure movie because everyone saw it when it was out. Yeah. But, but it wasn't commercially available. There were rumors that it was because Sinatra was so st stricken. Yeah, after the, the death mm -hmm. of Kennedy and the incidental parallels, because mm -hmm. for a movie in 1962, like it's one thing for Bogdanovich to riff on, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald in Targets, because that's after the fact. Yes. I mean, Manchurian Candidate has, because, you know, we know Lee Harvey Oswald spent time in the Soviet Union, not to yeah. go all, all over, not to go all, all over stone about it. But th those parallels were, were upsetting mm -hmm. to, to people. And I've also thought Manchurian Candidate is one of those movies, it, it's pre Strange Love. It would be a great double bill with Strange Love, and I like it more than Strange Love. But it's one of those movies where it almost feels like actually it doesn't matter who the president is. You know, this is not, yeah. It, it it sort of is saying any of you who believe that the buck actually stops with elected officials, you know, because because this, there's people failed. behind them pulling the strings. Pulling for the sure. strings. Yeah. I mean, you have you have Fail Safe by Lumet, which actually says the president is actually the best guy in the world. Mm -hmm. but, but you know like henry fond a few years later nope a few years later no yeah and, uh, another I movie that goes along with this is salt uh which was m made like more as a thriller philip noyce's salt it came out oh, in 2010 right. but it does uh cite the lee harvey oswald incident as like a first you know uh experiment of sending a russian back to America. And uh, so it deals with that. And then Angelina Jolie. So that's more of an action movie riff on this. But yeah, there's all I'm these films you can link together. Remember Salt had that amazing ad campaign where it kept asking who is who is who is Salt? And I think a lot of people saw the posters and like, we, we don't know. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea. Yeah, we, who we, is Salt? We, we have no idea. Is she an Avenger? We, 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 <laughs> we don't know. But I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear you know because obviously you're 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 uh, alluding to so many of the details in Manchurian Candidate. It's one of those movies where uh, I I don't know how 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 you feel about it. I know you like it too. There are parts of it that I sort of can't I can't believe how fresh and un and unsanitized they feel, which is in some ways a bit of a you know, a cheesy way to talk about an older film, but there are films from the seventies, even from that political paranoid thriller phase, the seventies that don't retain that same bracing quality mm -hmm. that parts of Manchurian candidate have. I mean, that moment when, when Mrs. Eisland gets shot, I mean, spoilers for anybody who's listening, but you know, when she gets her head blown off at the end, that's quite startling. 
It really is. Yeah. It's in black and white, but it's wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it anyway, I, and, and I think that as a movie that kind of just fired my, my, my preteen or early teen imagination about all the, you know, all the themes and all the surface stuff, but even just that idea that a movie could be such a kind of contextual object. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, important to me. And so this isn't digressing into list making and canonicity or anything, no. but, but while I'm not sure I would objectively say it's one of the 10 greatest films ever made, it's definitely going to be on whatever list I submit to sight and sound because it just sits so much at the center of a personal cinematic universe for me. And the next one we're going to talk about would come close. It's not going to be on my all time 10, but you know, it could be on a version of it because the movie we're going to finish with, I think is truly great. And we talked about Anderson before mm-hmm. and it's my, it's my favorite of his movies. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Let's lead into it. Lastly, we have writer director, Paul Thomas Anderson's fascinating 2012 film, the master starring Joaquin Phoenix as a traumatized, hot tempered world war II veteran, the likes of which you'd half expect to see in let there be light in the movie. We watch as his aimless rebellious drifter, Freddie Quell wanders onto a ship, gets drunk, wakes up and befriends or falls under the spell of the enigmatic slash charismatic Lancaster Dodd, the leader of a Scientology-like movement known as The Cause, who's been brought smilingly to life by Philip Seymour Hoffman, quickly falling for The Cause, including their auditing-style Q&A approach that they call processing, which utilizes elements of hypnosis and mind control. The film raises many questions about Quell, Dodd, plus their cohorts and relationships that I'm really looking forward to discussing with you because you wrote the book. So please talk to me about the master. Um, I mean, this is a movie that I've talked about, you know, elsewhere, but it's always fresh to talk about because it's, it's one of those movies. I, I use this metaphor sometimes, but it's one of those movies that somehow feels bigger on the inside than the outside. It's like an impossible structure. Like Mm -hmm. it's a pretty epic movie and this is the period of anderson's career where he's editing through ellipsis a lot so you're leaping through time and leaping through space and there's these incredible you know shifts of time and and tone and it's framed very epically as this story that starts in the south pacific and then drifts to you know america and then crosses the ocean to england and it's shot in 65 millimeters so i mean the the faces and the close-ups are huge yeah and yet and yet it's bigger on the inside because it refuses to be pinned down to being about any one thing. And it approximates a drifting consciousness. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes that consciousness is the character and sometimes it's the filmmaker. And sometimes it seems to be some third undetermined entity, like, I don't know, history. Right. Yeah. It's also, and it's also a movie I think that allows the viewer to have that kind of meditative drift as uh, as well and as much as i admire paul thomas anderson on the whole and of course i do because i wrote the book and I, I like a lot of his movies this is the one for me that i would keep right and that's not really what we're here to talk about we're not talking about a new tourist context of what's pta's best movie we're talking about the theme of you know of psychotherapy and mind control in the military but man it's about so many different things so we can narrow to that <laughs> you know, to our conversation topic for the week, whatever you want to ask. But I find it's a movie that's fun to get lost in, which is not the same thing as it being aimless or incoherent. My favorite little detail in the movie is that when Freddie watches the department store clothing model, 
and she's walking around. She's she's uh, the you hear get thee behind me Satan, and it's probably not the department store PA because that wouldn't make sense. It's it's, no. it's a non-diegetic sound cue, and yeah, you can watch the scene and go, well, of course Anderson's using that song because it's about temptation and about urge and about trying to control it, and that's what the Freddie Quell character is all about but it's sung in a way where sh- the singer isn't saying to control temptation at all it's basically a seduction disguised yes. as a as a refusal so there's all that and i think that anyone who wants to can take that away i love that that song was actually written for a film called follow the fleet 1930 yeah, and ginger rogers yeah ginger rogers which is about a shoreman a, a sailor coming home to find his girl Mm-hmm. And and whether that's like fifth level chess, Anderson's not just choosing the song, but he's choosing the movie and those connotations, or whether it's just one of those incidental things, it's like just a, a rabbit hole of a soundtrack cue, you know? I mean, that's how much I love this movie. I love this movie because of stuff like that. And that's not even talking about the camera work in that scene and the subjective tracking that he uses at, at, at other points. I just think that as an evocation of the period and as a movie that uses period to narrate things uh, about the psychic life of a person and of a society and of a country, it's uncanny, I think. Uncanny. Yeah, it really is. I love what you said about the get behind Satan number, because one thing that the master does for me, it's like they're saying one thing, but they mean another. People are symbols. There's a lot of symbolism scenes you're not really sure if it's literal you follow i mean anderson is known for every character being interesting even if they only have one line of dialogue and there's certainly a lot of those in this movie but we're not sure sometimes what these characters really think versus what they say and so i do love that element of trying to figure it out or to delve into the psyche of all of these things yeah well and he and he starts with the character i mean that ambiguity you're talking about is is some people saw this as a problem in the film i i had a a friend his big problem with the movie was he said he didn't understand why the lancaster dodd character philip seymour hoffman who's trying to launch this cult of personality and trying to find financial subsidy for it which is very close to the real L. Ron Hubbard and yes. waiting, you know, waiting for this point to point out that L. Ron Hubbard was trained in the exact same fashion as the psychiatrist you see in Let There Be Light. He was a military mm-hmm. psychiatrist, right? Yeah. Uh, another connection. But they say, well, why would that, why would he keep Freddie Quell around? They said dramatically it didn't make sense because Quell's such a liability. And I sort of tried to say to them in the spirit of, I think you're very smart read as people saying one thing and meaning another. Of course, he wants to keep Freddie around as a liability because he's trying to prove something to himself. Yep. Selling all those books and having all those followers doesn't mean anything if he doesn't believe his own cause. Mm-hmm. And I think Freddie is an interesting opportunity for him to see if someone this broken, this directionless, this, you know, basically hopeless can be saved. But then I think the ambiguity deepens even further because I don't think Dodd thinks he's going to fix him at all. I think he wants him around to make himself feel better about how absolutely fucked up he is. Yeah, it's a sycophant or like the man who wants the woman to be his cheerleader, essentially. Everybody wants that person where they look at them and they see that reflected back at them the image that they want. And uh, that is Lancaster Dodd. I actually worked at Phoenix Theater 
here. And that is where L. Ron Hubbard, I found out, it's known as the birthplace of Scientology, where he held like public um, exhibitions or something. He rented it out at Phoenix Theater. And so every once in a while, it's a playhouse. And every once in a while, we would get people from the Scientology Center, sometimes coming in from California, and they would want to tour and uh, take photos with the cast and crew of like whatever we were working on at the time. And so, uh, yeah, so the Scientology is kind of around this whole area. And so when I was watching and they go to Phoenix, I thought, oh, I know where that is. Yep. Oh, wow. Well, we, yeah. uh, we, we had a Scientology recruitment center near a big now uh, defunct movie theater in Toronto called the Uptown. And I remember going with my friends in high school to be audited completely sarcastically right we were not wayward freddie quells looking in the direction <laughs> it was like you know let's go fuck with the scientologists and i will never forget at the end the person doing the intake was like uh, when you guys get presents do you like to know what you're getting or you know is it better when they're wrapped up so you can have a surprise and you know we're playing along we're like oh we like our presents to be wrapped and so he, he pulled out a copy of dianetics and said here you go this is our gift to you unwrap it yourself and then almost like in a saturday night live parody he added by the way that'll be like twelve dollars you know and it was like this the perfect <laughs> encapsulation of what that whole grift is right mm -hmm. but i think that even beneath the question of dodd as a grifter and you see that right you see him trying and this is where that idea of mind control comes in too not just with freddie but i mean the old ladies who he's you know trying to take back to past lives he's doing it so that he can get money oh yeah from, absolutely from them right that's his form of of, of, of manipulation but you know, beyond the, the grift and the huckster part of it, you know, I think he really, <laughs> he really wants to test the, 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 the limit of his own charisma. And similarly, I think Freddie, who admits he has a problem with authority, sticks with Dodd, not even because he respects him or looks up to him, but because, I don't mean, know, maybe he just wants someone to help him. But I yes. mean, the, the, the catharsis of the movie and the self-actualization in the movie is Freddie realizing in the end that Dodd is actually a complete fraud. Mm -hmm. and 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 more broken than he is i think that's what gives him the confidence in the end to go get laid because more than anything in film is just a sex comedy it, it really is like it the is. opening joke yep all yep. the way through yeah opening closing joke yeah so he he's and i love that he ends up using the cause methods in bed with the wonderful yes. name Win yeah. in manchester totally as a joke right mm -hmm. it's a total little bedroom joke he doesn't believe in it you know, at all. It's like a, you know, it's like a little line that he can use. And in a way, it feels like it should be his happiest ending until you get to that last shot and all the ambiguity that's packed into the cut back to the beach, right? Mm -hmm. You know, has he found, has he found his best girl? Is he never going to find his best girl? Could his best girl sort of just be any girl? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the, this, <laughs> this odyssey that he's on, uh, of, of the lost girl, the Doris, the Doris girl who he's never going to get back again, uh, seems to preclude the idea of a happy ending. He's going to be yearning, I think, forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the elusive Doris Day, essentially the perfect girl. I actually saw the scene in bed. I mean, it is a joke, but it also had a little tenderness and a little sadness kind of below the surface, at least when I was watching it, because I think he is sort of chasing that early experience or the totally. high he felt yep. or the connection with Dodd. Their dynamic is really fascinating 
throughout the whole movie. I also love Amy Adams. I'm someone who was lucky enough to see her do theater, musical theater, back in the 90s before she was anybody. So I've, um, I remember her just holding us all spellbound, kind of like a Lancaster Dodd figure back then and so I've loved watching her career and she just she's one of the more interesting characters part of me wanted to know more about the son as you're watching it because you know Paul Thomas Anderson fathers and sons but Freddie Quell is his own kind of surrogate son surrogate a lot of things yeah well Peggy's an amazing character in the film because there's a couple of scenes that hint first through dialogue and then of course through pretty lurid choreography you know the most unpleasant hand job in the history oh my gosh yes <laughs> um you know she's sort of a power behind the throne right? yeah and it also sort of suggests too that there's a, this is a universe where ostensibly it's about male power right the institution of the military and the cult leader but i mean you know what freddie is completely helpless in the presence of sort of women of any kind there's that mm-hmm. amazing scene where peggy comes to him and it's almost it almost looks like a renaissance painting or something where she comes to him very maternally you know when he's lying kind of in a stupor after yes. the no more go a roving scene i mean she's never coming on to him but she certainly no. sees him mm-hmm. and when he makes eye contact with her she's naked and she has the pregnant belly right the same way that the girl he makes out with in the dark room has a bit of a belly and the woman on the beach is also this towering redhead yes figure i mean in there will be blood there are no women and you feel the absence like that's what's being repressed in mm-hmm. the master there's women everywhere and freddie can't keep his eyes off of them he's he's i mean you were talking about that theme he, he's mesmerized by the women who drift through the movie mm-hmm. and you know i love in the no more go a roving scene the complexity of it that he undresses every woman there with his eyes the whole female cast is naked and yet he's yeah. watching dodd so what's he doing? yes is he envying Dodd's charisma as he sings, by the way, a song about abstinence, just like at the behind me Satan, right? I'll no more go a roving. Yeah. Right. You know, is he, yeah. Is he, and is he, uh, all the sexual he, hangups. Yep. All the sexual, you know, is he envying his charisma or is it that really even in a room full of naked women, he can't take his eyes off Dodd mm-hmm. because you know, the queer, the, 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 the queer subtext of the movie is off the charts last fall at, U of T, I was really lucky enough to get to teach the authorship course, like the actual undergrad authorship course, because I'm an adjunct instructor at U of T. I'm not tenured, and usually I only have my one or two courses, but they let me do authorship because of my books, right? They said, go teach Mm -hmm. on the Coens and and PTA. And some of my students wrote so beautifully about whether or not The Master qualifies as a queer film. Is Anderson as the straightest, whitest, malest filmmaker of them all, you know? Is he appropriating this stuff in a way that's condescending? I mean, people had a lot of issues with the yeah. treatment, like the Hoffman character in Boogie Nights, right? That all they can think to do with the 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 gay camera grip is make him, you know, pathetic and unrequited, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that that I think that stuff in the Master's pretty integral. It's not an afterthought. It's really no. deep in the bones of the movie and the hangups of both of those men and what draws them to each other. I think very much, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is just such a fascinating film. And it was, am I right in remembering, like, came a little bit from There Will Be Blood as he was working on, like, pieces yeah. of it? Yeah. yeah, he was he was writing two scripts more or less simultaneously. I think There Will Be Blood was going to be even more originally about two families. As, oh, opposed, okay. as opposed to a man without attachments or, like, the one really dubious kid. 
mm-hmm. you know, battling against uh, the, the 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 claim owners. I think it was going to be about two warring families. But I think that the, I mean, and people have said this a lot. I mean, I talk about it in my book, but I only talk about it in my book because it was observed by so many people at the time that I'm just inventorying the reception. That I mean, there will be blood is a very uh, the master is a very elliptical sequel to there will be blood. Right? Yeah, there will be blood very very conspicuously jumps over world war one and even though daniel was not a war veteran he is damaged physically and psychologically in a way that is suggestive of the damage of war like he didn't go yeah right in the beginning yep but you know he's he's pretty fucked up Mm -hmm. and then the master opens with world war ii being over so it's like those two movies compress 50 years of american history with war as both the structuring absence and the thing that you just can't not think about mm-hmm. i mean i mean kent jones who's always you know one of the the gold standards for this kind of criticism the piece that he wrote in film comments so not an academic journal or anything but a you know a good magazine he wrote a piece on the master called battlefield america which you know the the, the reference is to hubbard and battlefield earth and dianetics but he was mm-hmm. writing about it as being inflected hugely by noir and the desperation the hard luck down on your, you know, down on yourself, you know, characters of 40s noir. And 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 I guess the world is kind of Freddy's femme fatale, right? Because everywhere he looks, he sees these, yeah, these sirens he's calling to him. Like somebody in the killers or crisscross, essentially. Totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's and he's always moving, at least at the beginning of the film, he's almost like a funny cousin or precursor to Forrest Gump you know he's just running in and out of problems and I love that his running takes him as far as the country goes it's like this great gag on manifest destiny where he runs out of road so he just gets on a boat yes right and then mm-hmm. when, he, when he wakes up the 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 in the in the in the bedroom or the the bunk room you know she there's that amazing line where the the, the girl says to him don't worry you're at sea you're at which sea. Is like, which Into, is like a, yeah, mentally everything. Mentally everything, you know, double entendre. Yes. Uh, and 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 all that. And so that idea that he it, it, and that's what makes it such an interesting parallel with let there be light, because he can't integrate back. So you mm-hmm. have the same speech you have in There Will Be Light at the beginning of the master, where the military personnel are saying, The country will have you back. And then that dissolves the Rorschach blot dissolves into the photos that he's taking at the mall of all the lives that he can't have yes right the smiling kids the prosperous parents yep. and the, the camera is separating him he's always separate yeah, yeah. these barriers the window the wall yep yeah the the, the window and, all. and i mean <laughs> i mean this this made it to print but when i finally got to interview anderson this year because these books that I've written for Abrams are not made as interviews with the filmmakers, which is deliberate. It's like the filmmaker is both the subject and then just not present. They're talking mm-hmm. through their colleagues. Yeah. But for, but for Cinemascope, I talked with, with PTA for um, Licorice Pizza. And I told him, we ended up talking for a long time. We talked about the book a little bit too. And uh, the whole time I said, I'm going to ask you the dumbest question in the world at the end. And he's like, I'm excited. You know, he, he was anticipating how stupid a question I could possibly ask him. At the end, I said, is the window to the wall bit in the master based on the Lil Jon song, Get Low? And he actually said I was the second person who'd asked him that. And I was disappointed. Oh, wow. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be the first who asked something yes. so so stupid. I then pointed out to him that someone on YouTube made a, a supercut of the master set to this Lil Jon song, which for anyone who doesn't know the song, 
the chorus is just Lil John yelling to the window to the wall over and over again. So, oh, wow. so, so someone actually has put that video on YouTube. It has like, I don't know, like 8,000 views. That's hilarious. And Anderson made me, uh, he's like, I want to see the link. He wanted to, <laughs> to see it. But yeah, I mean, the window to the wall bit pays off so funnily with them on the motorcycles, right? Where Yeah, when, as far as your eye can see, just drive to it fast. Just drive to it. So, you know, when you're stuck between two walls, you can't get in too much trouble. Yeah. And yeah, and desert. he'd been imprisoned, literally. And uh, now he's out. Yep. Yeah. And this is what I mean by spacious, you know, visually the... the the salt dune stuff is just spectacular. Oh my but, gosh. It's yeah. But the ideas like are Lawrence so of Arabia cool. for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like Lawrence of Arabia for a minute, you know, and I love, <laughs> I, I love too, as the movie goes on the little hints you get about just the grind and the difficulty of standing in front of a popular, a sequel to a popular work. It's mm -hmm. very funny where the movie it catches is. Dodd that he's written this thing, the split saber. I mean, talk about a double entendre. Even the cut yes. looks like a like a dick that's been cut in half. Uh, but then, you know, he's like, got to follow it up. But I love what Laura Dern, Laura Dern comes up to him and she's like, I've been reading the new work and I don't know. It doesn't, just, yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't seem to follow. And his impatience with that, but also the pressure of having to repeat yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I mean, not that this film is hugely sympathetic to Lancaster Dodd or by proxy to L. Ron Hubbard, but it's like, it's hard to run a cult. It's easy to start one. It's mm -hmm. hard to keep, hard to keep people, well, hard to keep people hypnotized, basically. Hard, yep. You know? Yeah. What more can I say? Essentially. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and again, that idea of you, if you repeat yourself, people will get bored. And if you say something new, people are going to be like. Well, hey, ready to come down on you. Ready, ready. Oh, coals. Yep. Yeah, which I think yeah. is which I which I think is quite hilarious. And then slow boat to China. Do you want to talk about that before we oh, wrap? Oh. Do I do I ever? What a sequence, eh? Yes. You know, there's a there's a critic I hugely admire, and I, I said this in the book that um, you know Nick Pinkerton wrote a really a really good takedown of Anderson in a magazine called The Point, or not a takedown, but like a very skeptical overview of his career. And he cited scenes like that as like when the filmmaker paints himself into a corner, he has to go to these kind of big gestures and they kind of come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fair enough. And there's a, the, you know, the rain of frogs or I drink your milkshake. I mean, his climaxes can be quite hysterical, but to me, everything about that song is so rooted in the texture and the, the motifs of the movie. Yeah. He, cho he chooses to sing him a song about loneliness and seafaring. I know right. it goes right back to the motif of the sea. Yeah. Right back to the motif of the sea and that idea of sort of possessiveness. And of course the Dodd character has been introduced and established as being so eccentric and impulsive and so eruptive, you know, Hoffman did eruptions so well for Anderson. Cause of course that's his whole part in punch drunk love. Yes. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Oh, shut up. I, I love mean, that. Yeah. I, I love it too. But I think he makes you feel like Dodd, who defines himself through all these different vocations. You know, what does he say? I'm a scientist, a philanthropist. I forget the exact list, but he says all the things that he is. Mm -hmm. He's he's capable, seemingly, of anything. And so I there's a certain psychological realism for me to the fact that he would sing. And there's also a certain list realism for me to the fact that Freddie would be flattered by it because he's being yes. serenaded, that he's yeah. being serenaded, right? He mm -hmm. cries. 
Yeah, it's I think it's a beautiful moment. It's it's weird. And the first time I watched it, I'm like, what is happening? It's like when they all start singing in Magnolia, Magnolia. essentially. But this time it just seemed like it really made sense for these characters. And there was something really sad about it. Yeah. And I, and I mean, you know, to to rope in or to yoke in, you know, maybe for the last time, the overall theme that we're talking about. I mean, Freddie at the end it's not just that he doesn't need to be convinced. The fact that he doesn't want to be convinced means that he won't be. Yep. You have this, you have this last effort that, that Dodd makes to say, we knew each other in another life. And I'm going to, you know, this is what we did together. This is why we feel so close. And, you know, if you don't want to hang out with me now, then I don't want to see you. It's like a breakup basically. Yeah, like it really friend, is. Friend breakup or a romantic breakup. And then Freddie, who has not proved capable anything even resembling you know verbal mastery in this movie he fights with people he loses his shit he 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 can't hold anything in he gets this like devastating sarcasm this devastatingly sarcastic line where he says maybe in the next life Mm -hmm. that's the moment where the spell or the the trance or whatever you want to call it is definitively broken and not broken because he's angry or broken because he's agitated but broken with a sense of humor it's so satisfying mm-hmm. that he that he can hear this spiel and, and walk away. Yep. And, and and walk away, which is again where and Anderson is nothing if not a one-track minded filmmaker in terms of male sexuality. I mean, people have joked and I've joked all the time about just the phallic connotations of his oh, titles yeah. and, and all that. You know, that's where Freddie is then able to find, even if it's only temporary or transactional, mm-hmm. he finds the relief that has eluded him for the entire yep. film. And I don't think it's that when he's with Wynn, he's fantasizing about Dodd. I just think that him being able oh, to, no, but, 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 but yeah. him being able to walk away is a big turn on for him. I think. I do too. And it's also interesting because we never see like a love scene with, except for the, as you said, the saddest hand job of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's able to be with a woman in a way we don't see um, yeah. the Hoffman character. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is why that, 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 that scene, which we keep referring to with Amy Adams is so funny because yes. it's hugely transactional. And it also seems that she is mocking him or yeah, cautioning the whole him time. Against, <laughs> against what she knows are his potentially gay proclivities. Right? Yes. She's basically saying, I see you. Mm-hmm. I know what you're doing. I know what you want. I know what you're capable of. And she's giving it to him in a way that is not generous. Not, it's no. like, I mean, in addition to being the worst. Hand it's like Pavlov's dog, dog, essentially. Pavlov's dog. It's like, it's like punitive. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like a punishment actually. Mm-hmm. And of all the great moments in Hoffman's performance, and it's a gross thing to talk about, but it's funny. His precise like vocalizations in that scene are priceless. Mm-hmm. Like, brutal and painful and funny um what a what a <laughs> what an amazing act you know the not to not to reroute into into anderson again but i i was happened to be in new york again with your your friend with megan abbott that's where we saw licorice pizza and seeing anderson on stage with cooper hoffman and talking about mm-hmm. directing him protectively was so moving you yeah know, I, I know people have brought this up but when you see it that close and you see them talking about this idea of collaborating and the idea that before he made licorice pizza cooper had been in a lot of movies pta directed but just home movies with their kids yeah is, 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 that's beautiful is, is, is very beautiful i think for sure mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, I know we wound up citing a lot of movies along the way, but for anyone listening, is there anything else you want to recommend that they seek out on, on this topic? Uh, I mean, I don't know necessarily on on the topic. I mean, I, I think... Or in the flow. Yeah. Or, 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 or in the flow. I mean, I think that I think an interesting supplement, obviously, to the Manchurian Candidate would be to watch the remake, the, the Demi remake, which, again, yes. I think in some ways is 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 a failure and in other ways is interesting another movie that I'm, I'm i'm sure you would have seen you've seen almost everything have you seen winter kills no i have movie? not which is which is also uh richard condon assassination thriller made more towards the end of the 70s with jeff bridges in it which is sort of like an Ooh. odd chaotic b-side uh b-side to the manchurian candidate cool and uh yeah, you know, I, I but 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 I think that these movies fit together as a again as a sort of unofficial trilogy and it can be a kind of one-stop shop because for anyone who's listening to this who owns the master on Blu-ray and I'm guessing mm-hmm. a fair amount of your listeners might fall into that demographic. <laughs> they may not know it but but their delight is right there. Yeah, so, check those special features you guys. You can watch it and watch it in the special features. And thank mm-hmm. you so much for having me. It is all thank you for being here. Yes. So, well, you'll so, have to come up with another idea and come back. I'll see you, see you, see you in a year. Sounds good. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.